Good morning, Edgewood. Thank you for joining us for this live stream Sunday school and uh, following this, the morning service, uh, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, God is still in control, and the Falcons did a decent job in the draft this weekend, so they surely now must be the favorites for the Super Bowl. And that being said, let me encourage you, uh, before we get started uh, with a word of prayer here and jumping into our, uh, our study, uh, do pay special attention to uh, the announcements that will immediately follow uh, this time in our uh, study of Mark. We've got some important information that, uh, that will be shared that you'll want to uh, hear and pay attention to. Uh, so just trying to give you a heads up on that so that you don't uh, miss it by running to the fridge or taking care of the dog or something like that. Um, we're going to get started here. This Sunday marks the beginning of a study in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash ebcga, you can go and you can find a schedule uh, for the study so that you can read ahead and track along with us uh, Sunday by Sunday. By Sunday. Uh, unless we are surprised by uh, some scheduling events or something like that, this study will probably run us through the first couple weeks of November. So we'll be here for a little while. Uh, we're not going to rush it. We're going to take our time. And to start off this morning, we're going to be in the first eight verses of Mark. Uh, it's a good transition to make because after spending so much time in First and Second Samuel, uh, we're able now to sort of turn and now look at the man that David had been pointing us to all along. David being a, a type or a shadow, a model of what the real anointed king of Israel would be, what he would look like, what he would do. And so it's, uh, it's nice to be able to move from David in the Old Testament directly to David's greater son, the person of Jesus Christ. So if you would, uh, open your Bibles to the book of Mark. We will read the passage in just a minute here, but first let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now that as we start this study and as we look at the center and the foundation of our faith, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, that you would give us insight and understanding. Help us to be able to understand uh, the material that we find here in its own context, according to the message that the author intended to communicate. Let us also, though, with uh, the wisdom that you grant by the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit, let us also be able to see how that message has uh, timeless relevance uh, to where we are today. Uh, be with us now. May the, uh, the thoughts and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, and it's in the name of Christ Jesus we ask it. Amen. Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll work our way through it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. 
John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We'll take this in uh, somewhat in order, uh, at least for the first three verses, and then we'll sort of uh, bounce around a little bit uh, on the, the person and the character of John. Let me start with verse 1 and just point out a couple things uh, that uh, we should probably take note of right off the bat. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So gospel sort of being this word or this term that we really don't use today in common speech or in vernacular. It's uh, sort of an old ancient word, but it essentially means good news. So the good news of Jesus Christ. First thing we want to say up front is that it's important to take note of the fact that the good news that Mark is alluding to here and that the other gospels present to us is built on, is centered on a person and what that person does and who that person is. It is the gospel about, the good news about Jesus Christ. So whatever it is that we do as we move through here, through this study, we want to understand that, John, that Mark is letting us know right up front that what he is giving us in these 15, 16 chapters is good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll have to continue on to see and to understand better exactly what this good news is, what is it about this person, and what he does that makes all of this good news for us. But just be mindful of the fact that John, or that Mark, excuse me, Mark wants to put up front, right from the start, that all of this is about the person of Jesus Christ. Second, Another thing that's interesting in verse 1 is that Mark sort of tips his hand for us, the reader, and gives us special insight into the material that we're about to read, special insight that the characters in this historical account don't even have. So, for example, there are two titles here that Mark ascribes to Jesus. One, he calls him the Christ which is the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. So Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, which in the Israelite or the Hebrew mindset is going to always stir up uh, recollections of these special figures, these special characters that came on the scene to do dramatic, significant work for the people of God and for the advancement of His kingdom. Most notably, of course... The idea of the Lord's anointed was attached to the office of king. So for Jesus Messiah to be presented here in this story is to say something along the lines of Jesus the king. Interestingly, this title for Jesus Christ or Messiah doesn't show up again at all in Mark until we're actually about midway through the book in Peter's confession. So it's not until we get to 829 that that title shows up again. So everything from verse 1 on through up to the middle of the book talks about Jesus, talks about the Son of Man, but never refers to him as the Messiah 
And that's done so as, it seems, so as to show that what we know right from the outset, because Mark has told us, is something that the average person on the ground, seeing Jesus, hearing Jesus, having fellowship with Jesus, something that they don't even quite know yet or understand. And that plays a significant part in how we read and understand Mark's telling of the life and ministry of Jesus. Why is it that we seem to be able to know and understand very clearly what's going on here, whereas the people, even the disciples themselves, seem to be so clueless? We have the advantage, of course, of hindsight. We have the advantage of being told up front that this is who this person, Jesus, is. He is the anointed king. The rest of the people will have to figure that out as more insight is given in the progression of the story. The second title that Mark gives to Jesus, and this is the most significant one, is that he identifies Jesus Messiah as the Son of God. Again, interestingly enough, this term is only attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark by the demons when they are about to be exercised. They will call out, shout out, they recognize who the Son of the Most High is or who the Son of God is. And it's stated by the Father in Jesus' baptism and in the transfiguration but nowhere else does any person, does any human in Mark's account refer to Jesus as the Son until you get to the very end when Jesus actually suffers and dies on the cross and you have the climactic statement by a Roman centurion, truly this was the Son of God. In a significant way then, recognizing Jesus as the Son of God acts as this inclusio for the whole book, these bookends. Mark is telling us up front, this is the Son of God come as Israel's anointed king to rule and to reign over her, to deliver her, to establish the kingdom of God on earth in fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. But it's not until the very end of the story that a Gentile has eyes to see what Mark has told us up front that a Gentile watching Israel's Messiah suffer and die as a man who is less than a criminal looks and says, no, this man really was the Son of God. So those things need to be kept in mind all through the telling of the story, that we have been given special insight right from the start, special insight that is hidden from, shrouded in mystery from the people that Jesus is going to be interacting with. Verses 2 and 3 then move into these, uh, this Old Testament quote. In fact, Mark says that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, meaning that this good news that is now coming to fulfillment, that is now reaching its climax in the coming of Jesus is not an afterthought, is not a, a last-minute addition or a salvage endeavor by God, but this has been the plan all along. This was written about generations ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. God has planned for this very thing to happen. Look then at verses 2 and 3. 
Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What you actually have here is at least two Old Testament quotes. The first half in verse 2 comes from Malachi chapter 3. So if you want to hold your spot here in Mark and turn over Malachi being the very last book of the Old Testament so you don't have to go far, Malachi 3, and then the other Old Testament quote is in Isaiah 40, verse 3. So, Malachi 3, behold, Malachi 3, 1, behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Malachi 3, 1 is what Mark quotes in Mark 1, 2. And then Mark 1, 3 is a quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says this, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. In addition to the fact that Mark is letting us know right up front that all of this is happening according to plan, step by step, that the beginning, the introduction to the climax of God's story of redemption is happening according to script. The, other th the, the thing that we need to consider along with that is it's significant that the quotations from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, the sending of a messenger, the preparing the way of the Lord, that in both cases, the messenger is sent ahead of the Lord, ahead of Yahweh, Jehovah. The voice that cries in the wilderness in Isaiah 40 is calling out to make way, to make ready a path for Yahweh, for your God. By doing that, Mark heaps on top of the titles that he's used of Jesus. In verse one, the Christ, the Son of God. Mark also clues us into the fact that what we have here in the opening scenes of the good news is nothing less than the people being prepared for God's arrival, God himself is going to show up, which means that when we read Mark 1 and following, when Jesus comes on the scene, even though he will look like, sound like, act like, in many respects, any other human, any other person, any man of his time, in fact, in reality, Mark has given us special insight to recognize that this is no, no one less than God himself who has appeared and come to his people as he said he would. That then is why Mark makes the transition from these Old Testament quotes in Malachi and Isaiah to talking about John. John then is the messenger, is the voice that's calling out for God's people to prepare, to get ready for the coming of Yahweh, for the coming of God and his kingdom. And John is the one who has taken on that role. Understand then as we make the transition, as we look at what Mark has to say about John, that it's important not to get, even in these verses, through the first eight verses, it's important not to get overly enamored or distracted by John's character. John is there as 
supporting cast. God is always the main actor, and God in the person of Jesus Christ is ultimately the main actor here. But how does John's role as messenger fit in to the opening scenes of this story? One of the things that we want to do is is recognize that, that Mark emphasizes through the Old Testament quote, and then also through John's location, he emphasizes the wilderness setting. So when he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it's a voice crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As you go through, you, you find out that not only is John in the wilderness sort of separated from, um, what, civilized, organized society, sort of living out uh, in the wilderness by himself, but he, he's dressed weird, he's got a weird diet. What, all this seems very strange to us, sounds foreign to our ears. In fact, it's... It seems to us that if somebody were to suddenly appear out in the wilderness looking like John, acting like John, telling people to repent and to get ready for the kingdom of God, in our mind, in our sensibilities, it would be easy to dismiss a guy like John. But surprisingly, John receives a wide audience. He receives a positive response. Why is that? Well, there are a couple things. One, the fact that John shows up in the wilderness is not accidental. The wilderness is the place where God first creates a people for himself. After the Exodus event, he brings the people, the Hebrews, out into the wilderness. And at Sinai, he enters into covenant with them. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the Old Testament authors and prophets continuously point back to the wilderness experience as that defining moment in Israel's history when she had her birth, when God brought her and made her a special possession. In fact, in Hosea, I believe it's in chapter 2, Hosea talking about the unfaithfulness, the infidelity of God's people has the Lord speaking and saying that when the Lord restores and renews the relationship with his people, that he is going to do that by drawing her out into the wilderness where he will marry her again. So the wilderness, even though it seems like an odd place, the wilderness has uh, special meaning for the Israelite people. It's where God created them. It's where God bound himself to them in covenant relationship. And after the exile, the anticipation is that it's in the wilderness that the Lord will appear to gather his people to himself again, just as he first gathered them together all the way back in Exodus. It's the site where God will remove his people to find him and only him, no other distractions, no other people, and when the nation will be restored and made whole as they were at the beginning. The other thing that's important to recognize is that even though John seems to be a very strange, sort of odd character, even the 
manner in which John lives and acts and conducts himself, even that says something about the anticipation of God's kingdom breaking in and the appearance of the Lord. In Malachi chapter 3, that Mark quotes in 1-2, the statement is made that I'm going to send my messenger ahead of me. But then later in the book of Malachi, actually in the very last paragraph of Malachi chapter 4, Malachi says that the Lord is going to send Elijah to his people to prepare them to turn their hearts and minds back before the Lord appears to gather his people to himself in a renewed kingdom. Elijah then becomes this uh, this character that the people are anticipating will show up in some, in some way, somehow, to make all of this happen. And so when John comes on the scene, actually what John does, he has Elijah-like characteristics. If you were to go back, you don't need to do it now, but if you want to make a mental note or jot this down on a sheet of paper, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 1 and chapter 2, Elijah is said to wear a garment of hair, just like John is said to be wearing a garment of camel hair. Elijah is said to have a leather belt around his waist, just like John has a leather belt around his waist. He, John dresses like Elijah. Elijah in chapter 2, when he's taken up into heaven, is taken up to heaven in the region of the Jordan River. Elijah, dressed in animal hair and with a leather belt, is taken up at the Jordan River. And now what happens? Now, reappearing in the Jordan River, dressed just like Elijah, preaching a message of repentance for the people to return, just like Elijah did, is John. So the people, rather than seeing John as this strange, weird character who's probably, you know, lost his marbles, would see John as being the fulfillment of Elijah returning to God's people to get them ready for the appearance of God in the wilderness and to make them ready for God's kingdom to be established. All the more significant then that when John comes and when John and his message are summarized by Mark. Mark characterizes John's message in two ways. One, John comes preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The problem that God's people have always faced is the problem of their sin. It's because of their sin nature. It's because of the acts of sin, the sinful things that they have done that, they, that there is a rift between them and God. It's because of their sin that they have been separated from God. It's because of their sin that they were sent into exile, that the kingdom was taken away from them. And so when God comes, God comes not because he's simply going to turn a blind eye to generations of sin heaped on top of sin, heaped on top of sin, God is not going to ignore that, but God comes to his people, as we're told in Malachi, he comes to purify them, to refine them. 
you shall be holy for I am holy. You cannot be holy. You cannot be considered a holy nation and a special treasure for God's own possession and be corrupt and be filthily covered with sin. So in preparation for meeting with their God, the people are confessing their sins. They're looking to be washed clean, to be made ready for a holy God who is going to come and be in their midst. Secondly, in the first quote that we have from John in verse 7, along with baptizing with repentance for the forgiveness of sins, we're told that John says that after me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The ultimate sign or the ultimate uh, difference between John and between the Lord is that what John does in a figurative way, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus, will do in a real substantive way. This baptism in water is good, it's right, in terms of what it signifies, what it represents, but really what God's people need is not just a ceremonial act of baptism. What they need is nothing less than God's own Spirit living and dwelling within them. And Jesus, in Mark's telling, is the one who comes to give that to them. Even that ties into mounds and mounds and mounds of Old Testament prophecy where prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about the fact that when God comes and when he restores his people and brings them back into the land, when his kingdom is inaugurated under the rule and the reign of a Davidic king, that one of the singular marks of this new age that is going to dawn is that it won't be just a prophet here or a king there who is going to have a special endowment of God's spirit, but all of God's people will be in possession of God's spirit. The nation, God's people as a whole will be transformed by the very presence and spirit of God dwelling inside of them. And Jesus comes to do just that. Interestingly enough, also in those Old Testament prophecies about how the Lord is going to fill his people with his spirit, it is the Lord, it is Yahweh who does that. So once again, although not explicitly, Mark is not so subtly acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh because he is the one who is going to do what only Yahweh could do, which is to fill his people, to give his spirit. All of this is setting the stage then for the appearance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's close then just by a couple tie-ins in terms of broader application. It's always good to remember that whereas we are not necessarily living in the day and age in which John is actually walking the earth, in which Jesus is actually walking the earth, the reminder that we have, though, is that everything that happens on earth, everything that happens in natural time and space happens because this is working out according to God's plan. 
Christians can even be so bold as to say that even things like the coronavirus ultimately serve the purpose and the work of God in advancing his kingdom, in spreading his gospel, in building up, in refining and purifying a people for himself. And so even though we may not know all of the twists and turns that are going to come in our lives, we can rest assured that just as from the very beginning God brought all of this into existence, he has faithfully day by day carried all of this creation, all of human history to its determined end, which is to enjoy the rule and reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Number two, we ought to consider up front that things like confession and repentance and forgiveness are not passe. They're not out of date. They're not Old Testament concepts, but that confession and repentance are things that mark and characterize the new covenant people of God. God gives us a heart to recognize and to grieve over sin. And the only right and proper response for anyone who has been given the blessing, the gift of God's Spirit, anyone who turns and sees Jesus for who he is, the first response that they would have is that they would mourn their sin. They would confess it, they would repent, and they would turn from it. Have you done that? Do you recognize your sin in the light of Jesus Christ? But then also we'd want to push up one step further and say that repentance and seeking forgiveness of sins is not something that's a one-time, a one-and-done sort of transaction. You do that to sort of get your ticket and to get in through the turnstile into the kingdom, but that the way of discipleship, the way of the kingdom for God's people is marked by repeated confession of sin, by repeated requests for forgiveness, so that late in the New Testament, even in 1 John, John is talking about the fact that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So next week, we'll turn and we'll start in on verse 9 when Jesus actually appears in the wilderness to set uh, the next step. The messenger has appeared in the person of John. In the spirit of Elijah and with an Elijah-like ministry, he is getting the people ready for the appearance of God himself. And when God appears, ironically, God looks very much like one of us. And yet it becomes obvious very quickly that he is not exactly like one of us. He is, but he isn't. And we'll spend the majority of our study recognizing those similarities and those differences and seeing how it is that God brings about his perfect plan through the work of his Messiah. Bow with me in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, hopefully what was a brief but a, um, an attractive introduction to the Gospel of Mark. We want to move into this study with some of the eager anticipation that uh, that John's hearers would have had as they anticipate the coming of the King, the coming of the Lord himself. We want to experience something of the shock and awe when we begin to recognize that the coming of the Lord is the coming of a person, that God himself has taken on a human existence, a human nature. Help us to marvel at that, even as we're dumbfounded by it. And Father, help us to see ultimately how the good news that we have our lives centered on, that we build our hope on, 
is centered and built on no one and nothing less than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you, Jonathan, uh, for uh, introducing our new uh, Sunday School study in the uh, Gospel of Mark. I hope you're excited about that. And uh, let me take this opportunity to welcome everyone uh, to the uh, service of Edgewood Baptist Church. Uh, for those of you that are uh, uh, Edgewood Baptist family, uh, I just want you to know I love you, deeply miss you, and uh, long for uh, uh, when we'll be able to get back together again. If you're visiting uh, by means of the live stream, I, I would ask you, uh, once we uh, start back services, uh, uh, please come and, uh, and join us. We'd uh, love to get to uh, know you and uh, minister to you. Now, before I turn it over to uh, Andy for a time of uh, praise and worship and music, uh, let me give uh, several announcements. And the first one is a very important one uh, in the life of our church. And so I trust you'll all perk up your ears and uh, get all the details on this one. Uh, we have decided to take a phased approach in returning to in-house services, uh, activities, and ministries. Uh, we plan to begin what we are calling phase one three weeks from today. That would be Sunday, May 17th. On Sunday, May 17th, our church family will start meeting together again in the church sanctuary for both a combined Sunday school lesson followed by a worship service. The Sunday school lesson, as we have been doing, will begin at 10 o'clock and will conclude at 10.25. There'll be a 10-minute break with the worship service beginning at 10.35. And uh, we will continue even after we begin meeting back together again to uh, do the live stream of the Sunday School lesson and worship service. Now, I'm not going to take the time right now to share all the guidelines that uh, are to be followed by those who uh, attend, uh, because there will be guidelines. We want to do this in a very safe, responsible way. Um, and those guidelines will be mailed uh, to the entire church family this week, also will be posted on our church website. Uh, but let me take a moment just to mention, again, not all, but just a few of the guidelines. Uh, social distancing, we're all familiar with that term now. Uh, social distancing of six feet uh, will be required uh, for uh, at all times when on the church grounds or in the church building. And we are very thankful that the size of our sanctuary uh, enables us to achieve this. Uh, no nursery or children's church will be uh, provided in this initial phase one. Uh, all children must be with a parent. Uh, we will provide uh, multiple rooms uh, where parents can take a crying infant or a disruptive uh, child and care for them. Each parent... Uh, will have their own exclusive room for their child with a monitor to uh, view the service uh, by the live stream. Only one person at a time uh, will be permitted in a restroom, and we will provide uh, monitoring to uh, help with that. 
And of course, out of concern for those most vulnerable uh, to COVID-19, we ask that senior adults, uh, 70 years, 70 years and above, and those with compromising health conditions not attend at this time on May 17th, but to continue to access the Sunday School lesson and worship service through the live stream. Of course, anyone not feeling well or running a fever should not uh, attend, remain at home. Uh, the sanctuary, the uh, vestibule, the restrooms, the outside railings to the church will be thoroughly clean and disinfected before and after our services. Again, let me emphasize what I just shared is not all the guidelines. Uh, there are more. Again, we want to do this in a uh, responsible and safe manner. And again, you'll, you will receive this week in the mail a copy of the uh, complete guidelines. And as I mentioned, that will be posted on our church website. Let me also say that that start date of May 17th, it's possible it could be delayed if there were a significant local increase in the spread of the, of the virus. Uh, but right now, what I just shared is the plan going forward. So uh, we invite you to join us right here in the sanctuary uh, three weeks from today on May 17th. Uh, let me continue to encourage you to be faithful in your uh, giving. Thank you. This past week we saw an increase uh, in giving that was very, very uh, helpful. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to be uh, faithful. Again, you can uh, bring your uh, gift, your offering, your tithe uh, by the church office. We Church offices remain open Monday through Thursday, 9 to 5. Uh, you can mail that in or you can use the online giving. And we've seen a tremendous increase in online giving during this time. And we're thankful that we have that option for you. And if you want to use that, again, just go to the church website, homepage, upper right-hand corner. Just click into the uh, into giving, and it's very simple to use. Just follow the instructions there. Also want to express personal appreciation uh, to one of our deacons, Linwood Spires. Spires. He heads up our a benevolence ministry, and of course at this time uh, there have been some very unique needs that have been presented uh, to our church from those in the community, and uh, Linwood has been so faithful, so kind uh, to uh, uh, manage this, uh, lead in this, and uh, meet these folks at the church and uh, take care of their needs, and I want to express my appreciation to him. Uh, next, uh, if you have not heard this, uh, you need to know that Governor Kemp, the governor of Georgia, has called for a day of prayer uh, tomorrow for the state. Uh, there will be a uh, prayer meeting uh, held uh, by Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor, and some uh, key faith leaders uh, there at the Capitol. Uh, but they are asking Christians throughout the state, of course, to uh, participate. So uh, I would ask you... Uh, Take some time tomorrow uh, to pray for our state, especially as we battle the uh, COVID-19 virus, that God will uh, bless uh, the efforts to open things back up. I have a, a good report on you that uh, for you that uh, Sarah Worthington now is home, and we're thankful for that. She's doing better. Also, uh, Jerry and June Gaylor's daughter, Jennifer, 
who had the open heart surgery in Atlanta and has been in the hospital there. We anticipate that she'll be able to come home the first of this week. So uh, continue to pray for uh, both of those. And then we have had uh, three deaths uh, this week uh, related to folks in our church. Uh, Marcia Walker uh, lost a sister. Uh, David Kelly uh, lost his mother. And Nora Prescott lost her father. So we would ask you to pray for all of these. So let me pray right now. And after I pray, I'll turn it right over to Andy to lead us in a time of praise and worship. Pray with me. Father, we do pray for uh, these that have lost uh, loved ones, uh, Marcia, uh, David, and uh, Nora. Uh, we pray for them and their families to be upheld by your mighty omnipotent hand, uh, to know your strength, comfort, and grace uh, in their lives. Lord, thank you for the uh, wonderful uh, reports concerning uh, Sarah Worthington and uh, Jennifer, and just continue to uh, bless and strengthen and bring healing to both of these. And then, Lord, I, I do thank you uh, for Governor's Kemp uh, call uh, for Christians to pray throughout the state uh, tomorrow. And I pray you will give us a heart to join in that. And, Lord, we do pray, uh, not just for the state, but for our nation, that in, again, your infinite mercy, uh, you would bring a halt to the uh, spread of the uh, COVID-19 virus. Thank you uh, that throughout the nation uh, we are beginning to see a decrease in the uh, number of cases. And we uh, give you the praise uh, for that. And uh, just continue to give uh, uh, medical folks and scientists that are working on treatments and vaccines great wisdom and success. Uh, we pray for President Trump and his administration, uh, Governor uh, Kemp, and the George administration, as well as all uh, state administrations and local governments. Lord, uh, that you'll give all wisdom and understanding uh, going forward as we attempt to reopen uh, the life of our country, reopen the economy, and just uh, bless us in those efforts. And then, Father, uh, bless uh, as we attempt uh, to uh, reopen uh, on May 17th, at least with a uh, combined Sunday school lesson and a worship service right here in the sanctuary. And, uh, Lord, we uh, just surrender to that to you, that all of that would fall into place well. And then give us wisdom, because, of course, the ultimate goal would get back to the place where we have all of our normal services and activities and ministries as we did prior to the uh, virus. And, Lord, just help us facilitate that, and may we see a quick return to all those things. So, Lord, bless, anoint now in this service. Use it to uh, draw us closer to you. Uh, for any that would not know you, uh, may they come to see the beauty and uh, wonder and greatness of our Savior Jesus, that they would turn from their sin to embrace him by faith. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, good morning, and uh, we do appreciate you tuning in this morning. Before we get started with our worship, I uh, just had a thought. Um, if you are tuning in via Facebook, I uh, would encourage you right now before we get started to click the share button. Uh, to the public, because uh, we don't want to just reach out to Edgewood membership, but we want to reach out to all those who may be streaming or scrolling through Facebook right now, uh, because some may not know the hope.
that we have in Christ. And that's what we're going to sing about this morning, is the hope that we have in God and, and the hope that we have in His Son, Jesus Christ. Um, Jonathan Merritt, our educational pastor, just uh, gave a wonderful Sunday school lesson. And, and, and one of the things I picked up in that is that Yahweh is the one who provides the Holy Spirit, our God Almighty. And uh, I think it's um, not by accident that I had this scripture uh, picked out to read to you before we start. And it's uh, in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may be, or you may abound in hope. Uh, you may have a numerous amount of hope inside of you. And so my prayer is that you do have that hope today. My prayer also is if you do not have that hope, that maybe through a song that we sing, maybe through the message that Pastor Andy provides, that you would see that hope. And today would be the day of salvation because we don't know what tomorrow holds. But those of us that have Christ Jesus inside our, ho- our hearts know that we will be in eternity with Christ Jesus one day, our Lord and our Savior. Uh, and we don't have to fear death because we know that's where we'll be. Would you join me in a wonderful song entitled, In Christ Alone? My prayer is that you, if you want to stand, if you want to sit, if you want to lay prostrate, however you need to worship the Lord this morning, would you do so? Christ alone my hope is found He is the light my strength my song This cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stilled when striving cease my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I'll stand. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness. Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on the cross as Jesus died The wrath of God is satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live There in the ground By darkness slain, then bursting forth through glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. With the precious blood of Christ No 
life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Let's repeat that again. No fear, no guilt. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hands till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written jesus christ my living could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless grace the god of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken i am forgiven the king of kings calls me his own beautiful savior i'm yours forever jesus christ my living hope. let's rejoice sing a hallelujah hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah Death has lost its grip on me You have broken every chain There's salvation in your name Jesus Christ, my living hope Then came the morning That sealed the promise Your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me let's rejoice again and sing that again then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declare the grave has no claim on me. 
yours is the victory. Hallelujah and hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. God, you are my living hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Other ground is sinking sand when darkness fails his lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale. My anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground. Is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his oath is covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's rejoice. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Thank you, Lord, for your hope that we only find in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, Andy. Uh, greatly appreciate this. Um, today, or this Sunday, uh, marks the sixth Sunday we have not met together and due to the uh, shelter-in-place order. And during uh, this time, uh, all my messages have focused on one thing, uh, placing faith in God uh, during times of adversity. And this morning, I continue that theme with a message on how to profit from adversity with our focal passage 
being James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4. So if you uh, have uh, your Bible, I would uh, encourage you to uh, go ahead and turn there, and we'll be looking at that passage in just a moment. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, in a message I've entitled, How to Profit from Adversity. Now, if you are familiar with the book of James, you know it contrasts real faith over against a say-so faith. James was very concerned about the ever-present danger of a counterfeit faith that professes Christ but does not possess Christ, that knows the truth but does not translate it into daily life. In the first half of chapter 1, James demonstrates how God uses adversity not only to authenticate a believer's faith in Christ, but to strengthen the believer's faith and deepen the believer's relationship with Christ. Look now at James chapter 1 as I read verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Consider it joy. Notice he didn't say you would necessarily feel joy when you are in a time of adversity, but he said, uh, although it may be painful, although it may be difficult, uh, consider it, view it uh, with joy. Uh, Why? Notice, knowing, this is why you would consider it joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's begin uh, by looking at four facts of life uh, that James tells us we all must face. And the first one is this. Adversity is inevitable. Notice James did not say if... But what? When you encounter various trials. Adversity is not an elective in life. It is a required course. Uh, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. The Apostle Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Peter said, beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal. Reality is the Christian life is hard. Words used to describe the Christian life in the New Testament are strive, labor, conflict, and fight, all of which are renderings of the same Greek verb from which we get the English word agony. The definition of agony is extreme physical, mental, or emotional suffering. Synonyms are pain, hurt, torment, anguish, and trauma, all of which are inescapable realities living the Christian life. God never promised to the Christian that life would be easy, but He did promise He would give strength to live it. So the first fact we must all face 
about life is that adversity is inevitable. The second fact of life, adversity is unpredictable. Notice James says, when you encounter various trials. The word translated encounter is peripipto in the Greek text, and it literally means to fall into unexpectedly. The idea is that without warning, you become blindsided by adversity that threatens to crush and defeat you. Just like the COVID-19 virus, very seldom can you anticipate the adversity you will encounter in life. Adversity is unpredictable. The third fact of life, adversity is varied in kind. Notice James says, when you encounter various trials. One thing about problems, you'll never get bored with them. Uh, the word in the Greek for various literally means multicolored. Uh, adversity comes in all shapes and sizes. Uh, they vary in intensity, kind, and duration. Some are a minor inconvenience, others a major crisis. There are more kinds of problems than there are flavors of ice cream at Baskin-Robbins. Adversity is inevitable. Adversity is unpredictable. It's varied in kind. And now we come to the fourth fact of life, and praise God for this one. Adversity is purposeful. Adversity is purposeful. Notice James said the testing of our faith produces endurance. In every adversity, God's purpose is to produce something for our spiritual profit. The last two Sundays, we alluded to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but not crushed and broken. We are perplexed. We don't know why things happen as they do, but we don't give up and quit. We are hunted down, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we get up and keep going. What enables the believer to keep going even when we encounter adversity? Paul gives the answer later in the same chapter. He says, all the troubles we experience, quote, produce for us a glory a glory that vastly outweighs the troubles and a glory that will last forever. The word produce that Paul used here in 2 Corinthians 4 is the same word James used when he wrote the testing of your faith produces endurance. Adversity produces spiritual profit. That is God's intention in allowing adversity to come into your life. What does Romans 8.28 says that we've already emphasized in this series? We know that God causes what? All things to work together for what? For our good, for our spiritual profit, to make us more like Jesus Christ. So adversity should be viewed not as an obstacle in the Christian's life, but a stepping stone in your walk with Christ. I love the Phillips version of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It reads this way. When all kinds 
of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, do not resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and produce in you the quality of endurance. But let the process go on until the endurance is fully developed and you will find you have become men of mature character. So look with me now at three ways God uses adversity, that adversity that is inevitable, that's uh, unpredictable, that's varied, but uh, God has a purpose in it. Look with me now at three ways that God uses adversity uh, to profit uh, the believer. And here's the first one. God uses adversity to profit your faith. Notice James says, knowing that the testing of your faith. God uses adversity to test the authenticity of your faith. Christians are a lot like tea bags. You don't know what's inside until you drop them in hot water. The adversities we encounter prove and display to others the authenticity of our faith in God. Could God have kept Joseph out of prison? Could God have kept Daniel out of the lion's den or his three friends, his three companions from the fiery furnace? Could God have kept Paul out of persecution, prison, and eventually being executed, having his head cut off for his faith in Christ? Yes. God could have kept those believers from those experiences, but God used their adversities to display the authenticity of their faith in God in order that others would be drawn to faith in God. And it's the same with you and me. Could God have kept you out of the adversity that you're presently experiencing? or adversities you experienced in the past, or adversities that you know are inevitable in the future? Yes. Why did he allow the adversity? The same reason he allowed it for these men, to display the authenticity of your faith to others, that they might be drawn to faith in God. Did you know that a jeweler will place a diamond in clear water uh, to test if it is genuine or not. A real diamond will sparkle with a very special brilliance. On the other hand, an imitation stone will have almost no sparkle at all. In the same way, God will immerse a believer in the waters of adversity, not to cause us to whine, but to shine, to sparkle for Him, that others would see Jesus and be drawn to His beauty. So God uses adversity to profit your faith, to demonstrate its authenticity, 
that it might be demonstrated to others that they might be drawn to the Lord Jesus. Look at the second way that God uh, uses adversity to profit the believer. God uses adversity to profit your endurance. Notice Job wrote, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The word translated endurance literally means the ability to stay up under pressure. The thought, and this is very important in the word, is not mere passive acceptance of adversity, but a courageous perseverance through adversity. Not just weathering the storm, but advancing through the storm. Maintaining a Christian walk no matter the circumstances. And please, please understand why endurance is so important. It is what we have emphasized, I believe, in every previous message in this series. God does not want you to give up on Him and close the book before He com has completed your life story. That's why endurance is so important. The most difficult part of endurance is what, of, of adversity is in the middle, when you see no rhyme and reason, where you're very, very confused, where there's that need for endurance, to, for your faith to persevere. So God has an opportunity to complete the story. Look at James 1.4 again. And let endurance have its what? Perfect result. And what is that result? That you may be perfect. That you may be perfect and complete. Endurance allows God to perfect and complete your life's story. And notice, you are the story. Adversities are merely the props that God uses to display His grace and kindness in your life. In other words, when God completes your story, when you come to the end of your life and God completes your story and you have persevered in your faith, what will wow people by your life story will have little if nothing to do with the outcome of your circumstances or whether or not you got the outcome you desired in life. What will wow people is what God did in you, how He perfected Christ's character in you and how you shine for Christ in your darkest hours. Ephesians 2.7 reads from the New Living Translation, so God can point to us Here's the purpose of it all. So God can point to us. He can draw attention to our life story. Why? In all future examples, in all future ages, as examples. That's the reason that He can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us as shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. This is why the ultimate reward for persevering in faith does not come in this life. It comes in the next. Look at James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who what? Perseveres 
under trial. Why is he blessed? For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul wrote this toward the end of his life, right before his execution. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And he goes on, not only for me, but for all who will love his appearing. Listen, beloved, the trophies, the medals, they're not presented until the race is finished, until the battle has been fought. And when God gives the rewards... It's not based on whether or not you crossed the finish line in first place or even if you won the battle on this side of eternity. God's criteria for His rewards are simply, did you finish the race? Did you fight the fight? Continually looking to Jesus, keeping your faith in God, and through it all, growing in Christ-like character so that His life was put on display through you to a lost world. You know, uh, I, I've shared this with the church family before, uh, but there may be those viewing by live stream that are not a part of this church family. Uh, just a, a, a beautiful example of this, if I can become very, very personal. Uh, my mother, who uh, passed away a few years uh, back, and, um, and I, I won't go into any uh, details with this. I'll keep it very brief. Uh, but my mother went through a very painful, horrific uh, divorce where my uh, father became unfaithful and abandoned my mother. And not only did he abandon her, but in abandoning her, he literally left her uh, penniless. She was a full-time homemaker. Uh, she had to uh, go back to school uh, where she uh, learned bookkeeping and uh, became a secretary for uh, an insurance company uh, here in town to be able to make a, a, a livelihood and uh, provide uh, for her uh, children. Uh, and, the, and the simple point I want to make, my, my mother uh, was a believer. Uh, when that adversity hit, you can imagine the pain. Uh, you can imagine the depths of the perplexity. And yes, she struggled with uh, uh, depression. She, 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 she just struggled with uh, not understanding uh, the rhyme or reason in all of that. Uh, but that, despite her, her struggle, she persevered in her faith. She never lost faith in God. She continued to trust God. And any of the church family who knew my mother know, knows that she was one of the sweetest, kindest Christ-like individuals that you ever met. And God used that adversity in my mother's life to prove the authenticity of her faith. And not only prove it, but put it on display. And as a result of my mother persevering in faith by God's grace, and in her darkest hours, shining for Jesus, all three of her children came to know Jesus Christ. I would not be standing here doing what I'm doing today 
if it were not for my mother's testimony. And that was the most significant impact on my sister's life, my brother's life as well, all impacting and influencing us to come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You know, when my mother died, she only had one possession in life. When she died, she didn't have a penny to her name. She had no property. She had no possessions. The one thing she had was her Bible, her Bible. I'll never forget toward the end of my mother's life. My mother, many of you know, struggled with dementia. But before that set in significantly, I remember uh, uh, being alone with her on an occasion, sharing with her, and I just asked mom, I said, Mom, um, uh, how do you just view things looking back and where you are now? And I'll never forget what she said to me. She just looked with just perfect contentment. She says, Andy, I know peace. I just know a perfect peace with God. And all is at rest in my soul. I've learned to be content with him in any and all circumstances. And now the point, the reason I share my mother's testimony, many people look at my mother and her life, even believers. And you can get the impression, well, God failed her. My mother did everything she could to reconcile her marriage. She put all her faith and trust and hope in God, but she never saw that materialize. As a result, she was thrown, as I mentioned, initially into significant uh, uh, need and destitution. God blessed her, uh, met her needs, and as I mentioned, when she died, had nothing but her Bible. But God does not look at things as we look at things. I am absolutely convinced that my mother's reward in heaven was great. And why was it great? It's because she finished the race. She fought the fight. She did not give up faith in God. And she allowed God to use the adversity to beautifully grow and blossom Christ in and through her life for all to see. And this takes us right to the third way that God uses adversity uh, to profit us. God uses adversity uh, not only to profit your faith, your endurance, but also your character. Notice James says, what's the end of it all? That you may be perfect and complete. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The words perfect and complete refer to maturing in Christ-like character. God's ultimate purpose behind all your adversity is to make you like Jesus Christ. Your circumstances are temporary, but the character they produce will last forever and also, as I've already mentioned, will bring 
eternal reward. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Why would we rejoice when we run into problems and trials? For we know that they are good for us. In other words, they bring profit to our lives. They help us, as we've already seen in James, learn to be patient. And patience develops strength of character in us. Now, practically speaking, how does God do this? And I'll tell you exactly how He does this. And I, I trust this will help you even uh, be able to discern uh, what God is at work in your life uh, to accomplish right now. God looks at your life, and He determines at this time the character quality you need to work on, that He wants to develop, perfect, grow in your life. And then He allows you to encounter the opposite. Let me explain. For example, if God wants to teach you love, you know what He's going to do? He's going to bring someone into your life that is very, very difficult to love. He'll bring someone into your life that hates you to teach you to do good to them. Someone who curses you to teach you like Christ to bless them. Or say he wants to teach you patience. What do you think God's going to do? He's going to bring into your life an irritating person or people or irritating circumstances. How about if he wants to teach you peace? He's going to bring a storm into your life. Or say he wants to teach you to forgive as Christ forgave. He's going to allow you to be hurt, to be deeply wronged, to suffer some grave injustice, or say He wants to teach you joy. He's going to bring sorrow in your life to teach you a happiness that doesn't depend on circumstance, but your relationship with Christ, the Christ who lives within you. Or how about if He wants to teach you contentment? Well, He's going to allow you to suffer loss. And I'm talking about suffering the loss of something that is important to you, that's precious to you. Why does He do that? To give you the opportunity to learn, like my mother learned, true satisfaction in Christ, that you can be content in any and all circumstances as you know the power of Christ at work in you. Therefore, right now, take a moment and reflect. In light of what I just shared, what's God trying to teach you right now? In your adversity. So, so far, we've seen uh, that God uses adversity uh, to uh, profit our faith, 
to profit our character, uh, to uh, profit uh, our endurance. So uh, what I want to do now is conclude with three truths, three truths to apply. Here's the first one. There's something you need to consider. Notice James wrote, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The first step in receiving profit from adversity is to change your attitude toward adversity. I've always loved this quote by Charles Swindoll. This is what he wrote. He says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. I think of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. It reads, Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. The word arm, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, is the word hablizo in the Greek text. The word was used of a Greek soldier putting on his armor and taking up his weapons to prepare for battle. Peter is saying Christians, like Christ, must develop the attitude of a soldier going into battle. We must realize the Christian life, like war, will be full of harsh fierce and perilous adversities. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. God wants you to consider adversity. He wants you to look at adversity with the right attitude. He wants you to look on adversity, as we saw earlier, not as an intruder, in your relationship with Christ, but as a friend to bring you closer to Jesus, not as an obstacle to your Christian growth, but as a stepping stone. God says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Let me share with you the best way to do that. When adversity comes into your life, the moment it comes into your life, do what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn from the adversity. Not that it's going to leave. It's going to, it'll be there. You can come back to it. But fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And don't miss verse 3. For consider him. Same word that you find in James. Consider it all joy. Here it is. Consider him. Consider Jesus who has endured 
such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. As we were reminded on Easter Sunday, it may be Friday, but Sunday is a coming. The cross preceded the resurrection. Just as suffering always precedes glory and the joys of eternal reward. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. After, notice, after you have suffered for a little while. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So first, there's something you need to consider. Change your attitude towards your adversity, that it's not an obstacle to your Christian faith, but a stepping stone. Second, there must, there's something you must comprehend. James wrote, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What do we know? That God has a purpose in every adversity you encounter. And he intends out of that adversity to bring spiritual profit to your life. Right now, you cannot see any rhyme or reason for what's happening. But God has a design in it all. This is why we emphasize in the first live stream method, uh, message, the just, the righteous will live by their faith. When you cannot trace God's hand, you can trust God's heart. Your life is in the nail-scarred hands of the potter. The one who loves you most and knows what is best for you. So we have to consider it all joy, view our adversities from a biblical Godward perspective. We need to comprehend that God is, yes, going to use this adversity for my profit. And although I may not see a rhyme or reason right now, I can trust Him. He has a design in it all. And I trust the potter. And then the third truth to apply, we have to cooperate with God in this process. It's not automatic. Your trials, your adversities can make you as bitter as they can make you better. Again, it's going to come down to how you consider them, what you comprehend about them, whether or not you cooperate with God in them. You can waste your sorrows. I've seen, sadly, many believers who fall into the gall of bitterness because they did not persevere in their faith. And they became very disappointed and angry with God. They shut the buck on God too quick, not giving Him the opportunity to finish the story as He desired. So in other words, simply don't resist the potter. Submit to His work. Give Him freedom. Give Him freedom to arrange the all things of your life in the way He deems best. Get on your knees and say, God, I surrender to you. You are the potter, I am the clay, and I give you absolute freedom in my life to arrange the all things of my life in the way that you deem best. Don't give up. Grow up. No God is more interested in building Christ-like character in you than making things comfortable for you in every adversity. Never forget this. The devil is working to defeat, defeat you. The devil's at work. He's at work to plunge you into disappointment with God, anger towards God, 
to short circuit your faith so that you miss that profit that God intends for you in that adversity. So in every adversity, the devil is, is, is working to defeat you, but God is at work to develop you. So which will it be for you? The choice is yours. I invite you to put your scared hands in the scarred hands of Jesus. He will never let you go, and he will never fail you. James tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Pray with me. Father, again, we're reminded, as we've been reminded throughout this series, that the Christian life is hard, that you have not given a believer some sort of special immunity from the pains of, and perplexities of living in this world that has been spoiled and perverted by man's sin and rebellion. And that adversity, as we've seen today, truly is inevitable as well as being unpredictable and varied. But we thank you that there's a purpose in it all for the child of God. Thank you that you have given us that ironclad guarantee because of your great love for us that you will not let anything touch our lives unless you have permitted it for our ultimate spiritual profit. And your glory, that Christ might be exalted and put on display in and through our lives. Thank you that you use adversity to test and strengthen our faith. Thank you you use adversity to build perseverance and endurance in our lives so that we will not close the book on you too quick. We will allow you to finish our life's story and you will be able to point to us as examples of those who knew the wealth of your kindness and your grace in the midst of difficulty where others will be wowed, not by what you did in our circumstances, but what you did in us, how you used the adversity to form Christ in us to be displayed in and through us. And thank you, of course, that you use that adversity to refine us into Christ-like character. So, Lord, give us grace as we concluded this message to, yes, consider it all joy when we fall into various trials and tribulations, and to consider it all joy by considering Jesus, our Savior, who endured the cross, despised the shame, but on the other side was the resurrection and eternal glory. So we, may we consider him who truly endured great hostility and opposition that we would not grow weary, but we would know that just like Jesus, although it may be Friday, Sundays are coming, and that although right now we may be in a Gethsemane experience, a cross experience, resurrection is coming. And after we suffer a little while, we will know glory. 
eternal glory. And then, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to uh, know uh, that the testing of our faith, yes, produces endurance. And in knowing that, we would find confidence in your love for us, that you have a design in it all. And although we may not can trace your hand, you'd give us the grace to trust your heart. And then, yes, Lord, oh, give us grace to cooperate with you, not to resist the potter's hands, but to be pliable, to be tender, sensitive, that we would truly give you the freedom to arrange the all things of our lives that you might accomplish what you deem is best. So thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us that you promised will never fail us. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Andy's going to conclude now with a great, great old hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Thou 